0: What is going on, SOMA Church? Uh, I'm Kent. I'm one of the pastors here at SOMA. And it's cool to be with you in this way. Uh, I'm going to read our scripture, which is John 15, 9 through 17. uh, And then I'll pray, uh, and then we'll we'll jump in. So let's do that. John 15, uh, verse 9. And it is in, it is on page 902, if you happen to have one of the black Bibles, if you took one of those home. If you didn't, um, you should have done that. So, All right, uh, verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I commit you, so that you may love one another. Let's pray. Father, um, we admit that this is new and different, and in some ways interesting, but in some ways uh, maybe uh, just, I don't know, angst driving or uh, this whole season uh, where we're seeing Cases rise, uh, death tolls rise, uh, not just here, but around the world. Um, And with that, unemployment uh, hitting record numbers and all the crazy things. Lord, I pray for just a moment, in this moment, we might be in a peace that is in your spirit, and that we might trust, ultimately, that you're a good father who loves to give good gifts. And that even in the midst of coronavirus outbreak, economic downturns, um, whatever's going on, that you are God. Your sovereign working all things out for those who are called according to your purpose and that more than ever in this moment is a, a joyful assurance and promise that we can hold on to uh, Lord I pray out of that we might be a transforming presence in our city um, whether even when uh, presence is more removed physically we might still be involved in people's lives in the ways that we can to see the kingdom break out i pray that in jesus name amen all right so um this is i, I don't really know what i'm doing here so uh, i assume everybody can see me if you can't uh we'll just do the thing where like we stop trevor uh and and let me know that or something um but uh yeah i I've been thinking about like what to reflect on or what I've been reflecting on, particularly in light of our series that we started last week, which was supposed to be our Lent series, which we were supposed to get five weeks of. And because of me pushing an extra week out of fasting and feasting and then uh, you know a global pandemic, we only got last week and this week before we jump into Easter next week. Uh, which, by the way, it's Easter next week, in case you didn't know that. Uh, it's sneaking up. Either way, uh, the, we we're doing this series called the cross of Jesus and the Christian life. And so I was just thinking about the cross of Jesus as it relates to the Christian life right now. And uh, I came up with the side concept, or not concept, I didn't come up with this, Uh, Jesus did, and then the book of John. uh, Came up with the concept of, there is a reality of the Christian life that allows us, because of the cross, to lay down our lives and to give love because we have received it. And there's possibly no more central theme to be contemplating on as a Christian now these days, because I've been looking around how um, marketing has been working right now. And uh, like I, I, I still have been biking into my office that I sometimes have been coming here via podcast. Again, shout out to fall Creek place MC. Thank you very much. And I, uh, and Ellen Banks said the other day when I was on the call that she, like, glad, was glad I had the, the SOMA letters up there because that that just, it was what she pictured to, that I should have in my office as a pastor of a church is that we should have our name on the, I, I told her, I, Fall Creek Place made all these choices, but I like them all, so I'm good, I'm down for it. Um, either way, um, what was I talking about? Something about Jesus Bible? Yeah, something like that. Oh, yeah, marketing. Yeah, so I've been biking in, uh, and I've been seeing all these billboards, and, of course, if you, like, listen to the radio at all or just, you know, ads on everything, all, like, every company, of course, is having a huge downturn, and so they're all quick to, like, jump on advertising and be like, hey, this is what we're doing because we really care and we really love and because we are always there for you when you need us and we'll be this strong presence. And then I've also been looking through politicians um, and – you know, just all the governors that are getting out and uh, all the you know, just the political uh, figures that are, you know, getting FaceTime and are talking about, you know, this is the time where we need to reach for our, our, the better side of our humanity and and saying all these really beautiful and good messages. Um, but yes, I believe that businesses generally care. I mean, I remember Zoom. Uh, uh, everyone probably overnight got, you know, Zoom Pro accounts, and they're probably raking it in, you know, a uh, hand of her fist right now. And people are like, well, yeah, they're doing really cool stuff too. They're... Uh, they're donating like you know free zoom accounts to like all educators so that people can and students so that people can do distance learning which i'm like yeah like on, on some level i'm like zoom probably cares on some level but it also aligns with their best interest that in this time where everybody is trying to flock to a meeting platform that they want to oust go to meeting by being uh, getting a huge Uh, Major uh, or or Google Hangouts by getting out a big news story about how the fact that they donate all this stuff. So it's like, yes, they care, but it also really aligns with the personal interest. And plagues, uh, and I keep referring to this to a plague versus a pandemic because it's a biblical term, and as I look through biblical uh, moments of plagues, that's what I want to try to interpret this through. Plagues are interesting because there's always a time when personal best interest and love for others stop aligning. Uh, David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist and um, is on a bit of a faith journey himself, he, he researched pandemics recently, uh, and he just wanted to like look back and find out where are all the uh, like, how did people react to pandemics historically? And so as he did that, he found that every single time, the most recent one being uh, 1918 Spanish flu, um, most uh, every single time. People respond in such a way that it brings out the worst of humanity, that following the 1918 Spanish flu pandemic, a whole generation of people didn't even want to talk about it afterwards because they behaved so selfishly and so uncompassionately. It was like this general sense of like, we don't want to really, you know, uh, think about the fact that we pretty much all had to look out for number one there. And it it brings out this idea that plagues are typically different than wars because wars bring out uh, common unity and purpose and mission because... For the most part, there's a clear external enemy that there's like this rallying together against. Um, but plagues, the enemy is within. In fact, the enemy could be anybody. The enemy could be my neighbor. It could be the homeless person on the street. It could be uh, the child who wants to pet my dog right now. It could be me. And so I, I, as I've been biking in, I've been biking on Fall Creek uh, Greenway, which is the best trail in the city, the uh, the canal path has nothing on it. Siri is popping up. What did you, What do you think I said? Okay. Uh, either way. Uh, so I'm on the Fall Creek Greenway Trail, uh, biking in, and you know everybody you pass. The Fall Creek Greenway Trail has been like more jam packed than ever. Which for the Fall Creek Greenway means like there's actually like you can actually look backward and forward and see another person, which normally you can't. And so, uh, but as you pass people, like you see like you know some people are just like focused in. Uh, some people are. Holding their breath, uh, you know, as they pass each other and everything, which I'm doing too, you know. But still, uh, it's just like this level of just like holy cow, like you know, uh, you know, I don't want you to kill me. And when people become afraid, they turn inward in their posture. Um, it's a posture of self-preservation, of self, uh, selfishness. Uh, I think Thomas Aquinas wrote about this, uh, and it's just this natural place of what we do in fear, and. Um, it's interesting thinking about as a whole. The reason I think I'm so cynical about marketers and politicians and all these people right now that are coming out and, and giving these beautiful messages about humanity and about their love for humanity and their love for our society and all those things. Again, it's like it's true, yes, but it also aligns with their with their best interest. And see there's always a time again in Plagues where Our best interest and our love for people have to depart. And there's something also in us. I talked about this um, in, I think, the last sermon that we had live before, or like, you know, in person at Westminster before this all started going crazy. I talked about the idea that as people, we feel like no one loves us. Like there's something deep into our ingrained humanity that no one accepts me or no one really stick it out when it's inconvenient to love me. I remember in college, I came across this idea that I just had this year, it was my sophomore year, I was living in a fraternity, and I had just been like working my butt off for all of my life, all of high school, all of middle school to win every letter and to get every award and to win every election and to try to like build up this resume and i got to college and the most freaky thing was is like all that was gone now i would move from west nebraska to indianapolis and i'm at butler and nobody knows me and some people know each other but like i have to like start from zero and so i do the same thing i start working hard i become freshman class vice president and i become um uh, I get involved in the a cappella group, the, the all-male a cappella group, and I get involved in the fraternity that I, I deemed as like, oh, yeah, that's the one, that's the one. And all of a sudden, I hit sophomore year, and I'd done everything again, and I'd gotten to the top, and then I just realized, I don't I don't know if I stopped working so hard how many people would actually like me, how many people would still love me. Like, yes, people like me, but I'm a very convenient person to know. I'm a very convenient person to like. I have power. I have um, you know, I can be beneficial. But if I stopped doing all that, what would people think? And so I remember, like, my sophomore year, I grew my hair out long. I grew my beard out long. I just, like, kind of, like, quit everything or at least quit trying in everything and started just being intentionally rude and whatnot and just be like. I, I remember saying in my head, I want to become an inconvenient person to know, an inconvenient friend and see who still sticks around. And the reality is is I didn't really feel like anybody did Um outside of Sharon, who I was dating at the time. Uh, shout out, she always says when I say this story, she's like, you neglect the fact that we dated through that time and that I did not break up with you, which she probably should have, either way. Um, it all worked out. Uh, so yeah, I, I bring all that up and you're like, okay, there's a couple disparate things. You know, how do these make sense, Ken? Bring them together, stitch this all together. Okay, I will. There's all we know about how people change is a couple things. Uh, one thing we know habit is a big deal. Uh, like forming a habit is just a huge way to like change, you know, brain neuroscience or neurochemistry and, ch- and make new pathways and destroy old pathways. That's a huge deal. But the other thing, at least one of the other big things that comes to mind, is we know in order for people to change, they have to feel accepted and loved for who they are, even their inconvenient parts at cost to others. Uh, Fred Rogers, who's Mr. Rogers. Um, who I just have been, the more movies and documentaries and books that have been coming out from him, I'm just like enamored with the Christ-likeness of Fred Rogers. Um, and he had a phrase he's known for saying. Actually, there's two versions of this phrase uh, he's known for asking. One is, who loved you into being? And the other one is, who loved you into loving? And In his book, he wrote about this concept. He said, deep within us, no matter who we are, There lives a feeling of wanting to be lovable, of wanting to be the kind of person that others like to be with. And the greatest thing we can do is to let people know that they are loved and capable of loving. Or later in the book, he says, love isn't a state of perfect caring. It's an active noun, like struggle. To love someone is to strive to accept that person exactly the way he or she is right here and now. And then lastly, he says, when we love a person... We accept him or her exactly as is, the lovely with the unlovely, lovely, the strong along with the fearful, the true mixed in with the facade. And of course, the only way we can do that is by accepting ourselves that way as well. I'm doing uh, some marriage counseling right now, uh, Sharon and I, and this is the concept we keep hitting over and over again of like, that's the beauty of marriage. The beauty of marriage is not the first, you know, most of even the first 10 years uh, the beauty of marriage is when you all of a sudden get that point where all the muscles of I can put up with your crap give out <laughs> and uh, I can uh, do these things, these responses, because I know that they will get a positive thing. And all those muscles just eventually give out. And then you have to look at each other and decide, well, I love you knowing all the bad and knowing how much it inconvenience, uh, inconveniences me. And will I still love you? And then when you choose to love each other, both in that moment, and then you choose, and then it's not only like you choosing to love them, it's you realizing I am completely unlovable. (laughs) Like I Uh, over the first decade, you figure out like, uh, the, the cost benefit analysis of loving me is way on the cost side of things. I, yeah, I have a little benefit, but ultimately if you break it all down, I'm fairly, uh, reprehensible as a human being and. And then when your spouse sees all that and then decides to participate in that struggle of loving you actively and doing the things at great cost to themselves to actually show you that you're still accepted, that they still care about you, that's that's what marriage is all about. That's what it makes it so beautiful. I was telling uh, Jess and Jacks this, uh, or I was texting with them, when their uh, whole wedding, you know, turned into just a close ceremony at their, at their house with the pastor, I texted, uh, I forget Jessica or Jacks or both. And I just said like, Hey, like I know this sucks and I know this isn't the way that you thought it was going to be. But the truth is, is this whole thing about marriage is about so much more than today. And everybody says they believe that, but you forever kind of get to live in the reality of, yeah, the wedding day was not the most important day of our, of our marriage because it's not. And so this brings me all back to um, John 15, 9 through 17, of which Jesus talks about, hey, greater love has nobody than this, than someone would lay down their life for a friend. In Romans, it talks about that, you know, who has greater love than Christ, that he laid down his fr- uh, life not just for a good person, but for an enemy. And I've been thinking about that in the midst of seeing all the billboards. "Hey, we really uh, love this community. We love you. We are all here for you. Uh, you know We're reaching for our better selves. And when all of that potentially goes away, when there's like real cost to loving one another, in all of the facade of, yes, we love you, we love you because uh, it gives people positive feelings about our company or about my, my future political aspirations or whatever, and when all that goes away, and it's truly inconvenient to love other people. That's when the church has to be the church. That's when we have to be ones who are preparing our hearts now to lay down our lives for others. And I don't know what that means. I don't know how this, you know, I mean, this all could turn the tide and and start moving in the better direction uh, tomorrow. And that's good. And it'd be, it's prayerfully, that's what we want. I'm just saying, I keep reflecting on this time and I keep trying to think like, man, as I'm passing people on the street, how can I even in that moment, as I'm trying to like, look for people to text, how can I look for ways to show, hey, I love you. I accept you. Not in a way that's stupid and foolish. This is not a call to be like, you know, neglect social distancing and all that. This is not, this is not what this is about. It's just a point that, I mean, I heard someone talk about it at NPR. Maybe we, social distancing is the wrong word i mean it's physical distancing but socially we need to be in each other's lives through text, through calls through through encouragement through thinking of one another through you know waving at the on the trail and not just holding your breath and and through doing ways to to truly love one another and then yes maybe there does come a time where the church it's going to come at a small or great cost to us i don't know uh, again it's much less the point of where this is going and much more the point of how I'm trying to position my heart to to continue to just to think about people and not look at everyone as man the potential enemy lies within you but rather we're all broken and cursed in this moment in the fall and yes there's safety precautions to take and wise ways to interact but then there's also ways to to figure out what it looks like today in this moment to wisely lay down my life for another and then maybe in a future moment to unwisely lay down my life for another uh, a member I was texting with of our church texted this uh, just what she was doing she didn't you know, do this to like, get a pat on the back because she didn't know I was going to read this um, but I just thought this was beautiful uh, this is part of her text she said I help an elderly lady from her old church that, uh, with weekly shopping and running her trash out and getting her mail it is a disaster and we realize how fortunate we are uh, for a warm home and healthy bodies and know that our city is full of those with mental illness, lack of resources, and physically uh, not well. Praying that God gives us abilities that we can tangibly make a difference for those in less, less fortunate circumstances. And then she, commenting on another part of my text. She says, I cannot even imagine juggling four kids under six. Which, by the way, having four kids right now is, I said this earlier, it's a big advantage. you got a self-contained quarantine community. All you people with one or two kids... I don't, I don't know what you're doing. Either way, uh, she's like, I cannot imagine uh, juggling four uh, kids under six. I had a dear friend who had three kids under five and had sprained both her ankles, and I had only my oldest at the time and really tried to help her in tangible ways. Unfortunately, with social distancing, our focus on helping others has to be through material items and maybe our words, which can be very powerful. I was reading that text, and I was like, yeah, that's, that's, that's it. That's what I'm trying to reflect on. How do I, yeah, through material ways, through words of affirmation uh, from afar lay down my life for other people and then as if things get better awesome and if things get worse then what does it look like to lay down my life for another then because again we have this not just out of a sense of okay you have to man up and do it because you're the Christian but because you have been loved by by Jesus in a way that the cross demonstrates that he doesn't love you at your lovable parts, but he loves you at the most grotesque detestable parts of you. And so when you have a moment where you're truly reflecting on the cross, and I know that sometimes you hear it so many times it grows numb to your heart, but there's other times where you're like, man, I have the spirit refresh myself anew to realize that the cross means that Romans 5, 8, that while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That while I was at my worst, Christ lays down his life for me and with full knowledge of all that I would be in the future. And when I wrestle with that reality of that I'm completely loved, completely accepted, and he will not abandon me in my sin and my brokenness, that in turn starts to realize that I can now let go of this need to not feel shame. And this need that nobody is actually going to accept me because i know i actually am and you're like well yeah i'm accepted by somebody who's like this invisible friend yeah but the fact is i'm also accepted by the king of all the universe who's the only one who will pre-exist at everything and will exist in eternity forever and will be at one day before me saying i accept you i love you i'm present to you and even now in his spirit he can be doing that to me and then when i actually experience that when i have that when i possess that and i can give that then yeah I still practice wise practices for what the days are, but I'm always at a place where I'm looking at people and saying, "You're not the enemy." I don't have to freak out and, and go for mine. Worst case scenario, me and my whole family died and we go before the king. Which you know, first part's bad, but yeah, I don't, I'm encouraged by it ultimately. So. Again, I want to keep pressing into this idea uh, during this time of what does it look like to be the church, to stop going to church and start being the church. Um, I just think it's, this is a really invigorating opportunity for the church. And plagues and persecution have kind of been our thing since, like, the beginning of the church. So we join a long list of the church of the Hall of Fame of Saints who participate in things that get really ugly and who knows whether this gets there or not Um, this has always been a time for the church to not go to church but to be the church let me pray Father God I pray for you to give us in your spirit an opportunity to reflect on the reality of your cross and the fact that you died for us, not in our beautiful moments um, and not in our moments of being convenient to know and like and to be a friend, but while we're enemies, you died for us. Um, Lord, let that be something that then moves in us to create the kingdom in us and then flow out of us to the image of God around us. In Jesus' name, amen.